Hey there, welcome to the second episode of the Coffee and Pens podcast. This week I had the pleasure to talk to David Cadavy about his three long books and a few short reads that he's written. We talked about living in South America first and how that affects his writing. Then we talked about the difference between traditional publishing and self-publishing. And finally, we talked a little bit about his book, Mind Management, Not Time Management, and how those principles apply to writing. Hey, David, thanks for joining me on the Coffee and Pens podcast. Kale, thank you so much for having me. It is an honor to be invited. It's my pleasure. I read in your books that you moved to Medellin a couple of years ago to South America. That's where I live as well. Um, so you speak Spanish at night and English during the day. It's, that's my reality as well. How does that um, affect you in your writing? How does it affect my writing? Well, so yeah, I moved here. It's, it's, it's uh, more than five years ago now. It's like five and a half years ago. And uh, so one of the interesting features that I found as I moved here to double down on writing and to basically transform myself into a writer, uh, one of the interesting features that I didn't necessarily anticipate was that, yeah, people speak Spanish here. That's obvious, but it kind of has a benefit to it in that, you know, during the day I'm like writing in English. Uh, my partner doesn't speak English. She speaks Spanish. She's Colombian. And uh, so in the evening I'm like, thinking in Spanish or a lot of the day I'm thinking in a completely different language. And uh, that is a good, I think, sort of disconnect. You sort of get stuck in this world of words and uh, you get this intuitive connection with words in the language. And then you kind of have to like pull yourself out to where you're trying to having to think quite deliberately about what word it is that you're looking for um, and I find it to be like a, a nice, a nice, a nice disconnect, but there's also a lot of other interesting things that you realize as somebody who works with words, when you come across things that either translate in an oddly accurate way, uh, from one language to another or an oddly inaccurate way. So like one of my personal favorites with, with Spanish is, is that, okay, in Spanish, to to fast meaning to not eat food is to ayunar and to 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 have breakfast is to desayunar so you're you're unfasting and like oh that sounds like f funny and sort of oddly simplistic uh in a way but then you realize that it's the same way in english that to fast is fast and to have breakfast is to break fast, is breakfast. So there's all sorts of fun things like that I discover as well. Yeah, that's so relatable. I, mean, I think I had the same realization about two years ago. So I was speaking Spanish for about seven, eight years then when I realized, hey, wait a minute, this ayunar means to break, like to stop your fast. And then I thought, hey, in English right. it's the same. And I had never thought about this before. However, it doesn't work with uh, it doesn't work with resting. So, to to con to 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 get tired is to consar, uh, mm -hmm. and to untired yourself is to rest is to desconsar. Yeah. So you are untiring yourself, and I don't know of a parallel in in the English language. So I, whenever I come across one of these things, I just sort of 
try to keep a note of it and put it into some sort of running list. Like I'm sure I've got a note somewhere that has like a lot of other uh, sort of fascinating things, but that's one of the more interesting ones to me. Yeah, it's a funny one. Uh, you mentioned a, f- a few times in your book, actually, that um, or in your books that Medellin is the city of the eternal spring. I lived in, in Cochabamba, Bolivia, up till last year. And that's also the city of eternal spring. I think there are quite a lot of... There's a bunch of them, yeah. Yeah. There's a Wikipedia page and everything. Uh, really? I should have a look. And then you mentioned near the end of the book, and I think that's the, the most relatable thing I've, I've read personally, that you actually had to go to the bank like a caveman when you <laughs> need, to, need to get some admin done. And like, coming from Europe, or you from the United States, that was so strange that I actually had to go to the bank to pay my electricity bills, my water bills, my gas bills. Yeah, I have to go to the bank to pay my rent. Uh, and a lot of that's cultural. A lot of it's also just the way that my particular landlord works, which, by the way, it was very difficult as a foreigner to get an apartment even here. And uh, I was fortunately found an owner of an apartment and rented directly from him. But it was like I had to hang out with the guy for like a couple days and have lunch with him a few times and like spent hours with this person to to sort of build that that trust and then on top of it it's just he doesn't like bank transactions and he banks in a different bank so when i pay my rent what i usually do is i there's this section of the mall that i go to that uh has like all the banks in this one hallway and it's kind of secure that way because there's it's a closed area and there's uh security guards there and everything and so i go and take out you know 10 million pesos like several months worth of rent and just in cash and i just stow it in my backpack and then i like walk across this hallway and to a different bank and give them big stacks of money and uh and deposit it and that's how i pay my rent yeah that's funny and that's so relatable my first landlord was this old guy he would come get rent each month for his sister actually he was the owner of the apartment and we didn't even have to deposit it he would come to our apartment to just collect it himself and write down the the number of the dollars so we i would pay in dollars Okay, see, I would like that even less because I would have to not only go to the bank to get the cash, I'd have to like have the schedule. Oh, he's going to stop by and he'll probably want to chit chat or something like that. <laughs> I, I, I prefer being able to just deposit it in the bank like that. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So living in Colombia, which was one of the biggest uh, coffee production countries in the world, I suppose, and are well known for its coffee. Um, I'm not sure if I read that you drink coffee, but do you drink <laughs> coffee and what's your favorite? This is, uh, wow, I, I, this is, I shouldn't even be admitting this. I don't drink coffee. I never have. Well, okay. I did recently start trying uh, like some decaf here and there, you know, for the antioxidants or whatever. I'm just really sensitive to caffeine. If I, even like green tea, I drink a little bit of green, I might drink a little bit of green tea every once in several months. If I like really kind of want an extra sort of mental edge for a short period of time. Um, but then I'll, I'll likely feel a little anxious. My heart might race a little bit. I might get a little short of breath. I might start like getting slightly paranoid or something. 
not just like that day, but maybe like the next day or, or days after a couple days afterwards. And so once I sort of made that connection, I mean, I, I never really drank coffee to begin with, but once I made that, I used to drink tea quite a bit. Once I made that connection, I stopped drinking tea as well. And so now I'm just like all herbal teas. Um, <clears throat> however, I do once in a while drink uh, coca leaf tea, which is not legal in the United States. Uh, I think the only company that's allowed to even import the leaves is Coca-Cola, which I, I learned at the Coca Leaf Museum in Cusco, Peru. And the, the woman there told me like, oh, it's totally true. Like, no... Nobody knows this. And then I was saying that to somebody and he was like, oh, that's interesting because I used to know guys in, in the drug business and they would hijack Coca-Cola trucks in the United States, apparently, which is, okay, don't even ask me how I was talking to this person. But uh, so that, 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 that was kind of interesting. So coca leaf tea uh, apparently has whatever is in cocaine but like at like thousands of uh you know and i'm sure it's also you know has plenty of other uh compounds in it as well but it's a nice doesn't make me jittery mm, perks me up just a tiny bit and it's it's kind of cool um to consume this harmless beverage that uh is for whatever reason not a, not legal in the united states yeah, that's so funny. I went, I went to the Coca Museum just two or three weeks ago. And oh, wow. I remember seeing... It's good. Yeah. And there was this, it was a really funny thing that they had four or five pictures up from famous cocaine, cocaine reusers. So this was a picture of Maradona and I think there was Amy Winehouse and there were like a few more famous people that oh, wow. I didn't were well known that. because of their drug abuse. <laughs> so that was funny. That's an interesting choice. <laughs> yeah. And I remember saying this, um, what you said about Coca-Cola importing uh, coca leaves. Mm -hmm. And because of something I was writing this morning, I looked up like, the history of Coca-Cola and there it said that they stopped using coca leaves in their productions like 120 years ago. So why are yeah. you still importing it? Yeah. Well, oh. Well, I think that it was, if I, if I recall correctly, this was, a few, this was almost exactly three years ago that I went to the Coca Leaf Museum. I, yeah, they don't use the uh, compound or the, the sort of active ingredient in Coca-Cola anymore, but it's used for the flavoring, or at least that's what they're claiming. Oh, okay. <laughs> the powerful company, they, who knows? Who knows what sort of like under the table sort of deal they have going on to be able to import this this leaf and uh maybe unbeknownst to the american public actually put yeah. uh, a compound in. Who knows? i don't, don't want to make i don't want to make conspiracy theories here but yeah you never know uh you could get me started on all the gold trade to the u.s and everything but actually i want to talk to you about, uh, about <laughs> books um right. and you have a section on your website which i'm definitely going to link to in which you discuss your tools but the tool I'm most interested in is the Alpha Smart. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yes, I love the Alpha Smart. What a wonderful device! The Alpha Smart uh, is like a little—it's a portable word processor. It's basically a keyboard that has a small screen on it, and uh, you—and there's twelve files that you can 
store things in and they're just all individual buttons on that keyboard. And you can just pick it up and turn it on and type. And uh, you can see maybe four or five lines of type on it. And uh, it is a really wonderful device for just capturing some thoughts. Um, and people get very confused about that. They want to know, well, how does it, does it, doesn't sync to Dropbox? It doesn't sync to Google Docs or whatever. It doesn't, you know, what's the use of this device? And that's, that's why the device is useful is it doesn't sync to all those things. Because I think a lot of people just don't realize that uh, the, the process of writing is not always sitting down and writing one word after another and having it come out perfectly. And often one of the biggest enemies to us getting writing done is the tools that we're using themselves. And so the wonderful thing about the AlphaSmart is, is just for writing. It's in fact, not so good for editing. You can edit on it. You wouldn't want to, it's painful. And so that's one thing that like helps get you, keep you moving so that you are writing. And there is a, uh, a little habit that I do every morning. I keep my AlphaSmart in my nightstand. And uh, first thing in the morning when I wake up, I sleep with a mask on before I even open my eyes. I just sort of like grope my way into the nightstand and pull out the Alpha Smart, turn it on, and type until I feel like I've typed at least a hundred words. And then I'll ver verify, and sometimes it, uh, I'm at 98 words or something like that. But most of the time, I end up writing a lot more than that. I end up writing, you know, 500 words or something. And it's just anything, anything that's on my mind, a dream that I had, uh, something that I'm thinking about um anything and even if i if i start if I'm, if I'm writing about one thing and i start thinking about another thing i'll just change the subject mid-sentence and it's a really wonderful expressive tool and actually once i'm done most of the time i just delete everything that i just wrote because uh, it's not so much about producing the words it's about exercising those connections in your mind and to the point that Sometimes the Alpha Smart, like right now, I'm out of batteries. So uh, I was writing on it this morning, and it's just like writing. You, you, if you can touch type when you're typing on a keyboard, <clears throat> it's just like writing. Uh, it, those connections are still happening in your mind, even if you aren't saving it in that moment. Uh, and it's just, it's wonderful. And one of the things that's great about it, not having internet, it's just, it's a very private thing. You can, you can write things that you, you might not normally put, put down because you'd be worried somebody might read it or, you know, things that you're not even sure that you believe or think and you can exercise all that stuff. And it's, it's really, uh, it's really wonderful. Uh, I've also taken to writing with uh, a typewriter lately as well. So I, I love these sort of single use uh, devices for writing that uh, don't distract you and that uh, don't get in the way of you writing. Yeah, from what I've noticed in, in your books is that you tend to look always for new ways to write without distractions. So you <laughs> yeah. say that, um, for example, you, you write a lot with your iPad and a separate keyboard. And yes. then I also, I also read that you're on your tools page, you said that you're a big fan of Scrivener. Is that something that you use on your iPad? Yeah, Scrivener is available for both desktop 
and and iPad. And actually, now that you mentioned that, maybe I should update that that list because I haven't been using Scrivener so much lately. I did use it for this latest book, My Management, Not Time Management. But lately, I've just become really... Uh, Scrivener has a lot of nice tools that I think that screenwriters and especially fiction writers use to, to sort of help them storyboard. Um, and it has formatting. So it has like kind of all those bells and whistles that you can use to make something look nice. But lately I've just been really obsessed with plain text and especially markdown writing, which is just, you know, if you want to make a header, uh, you just type a pound sign and then type the whatever the header is and like that formats it. it's sort of human readable but various programs can read it and uh give formatting to it and so i've been really interested in just plain text lately and so i've been using a lot of uh i, I do write on my ipad a lot um i, I love, love that it's pretty low distraction there's sort of uh, it's hard to do a lot more than write on it when you have a keyboard hooked up to it and uh, so I've, I've been using OneWriter for iOS, which is just a very plain text editor. I've been using that a lot. And lately I've also been using Ulysses quite a bit, uh, which is also pretty much plain text, but it has a, 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 a few more features to it. One that I like the most is its ability to export to WordPress. So I can type in Markdown. I don't have to go into WordPress and say, oh, this is an H3 and this is an H1 or whatever. It supposedly has keyboard shortcuts, but I've never been able to get them to work. And and I just, I can add the images and everything and it uploads all of it to, to WordPress. Um, and then, you know, uh, my, my for my podcast, for example, my team then kind of picks it up and puts in the podcast stuff and and publishes it that way. And so that way I'm always just working with the most basic raw materials of writing, uh, which is plain text. So I'm a big fan of those plain text tools as well. All right. Um, yeah, I've, I've noticed that with many authors so far that they um, prefer these markdown tools. And what they have in common so far is that they are either designers uh, or programmers in the past. So. Uh, I think you've been a designer yourself and you wrote your first book about it, I guess. Um, yeah. Design for Hackers was your first book. Is that right? That Design for Hackers was my first book and I was uh, a web designer doing a lot of front-end development as well at the same time. A little bit of back-end development uh, as well. So yeah, got some programming uh, in my DNA. All right. Um, and this book, you got a book deal for this book, right? For Design for Hackers, I did, yeah. That was a uh, published book through a traditional publisher through Wiley. Um, and they're, they're the ones who really, you know, gave me the confidence and gave me an advance to go ahead and write that first book. I don't think that I would have had the guts to do it, um, at least not as soon <laughs> uh, for that first one. But since then, I've been self-published. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between uh, traditional publishing and self-publishing? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I got really lucky with Design for Hackers, to be honest. I wrote a blog post and then I, they, I had written some blog posts, but then I kind of wrote one that I put a lot of effort into uh, and it's an attempt to get a speaking slot at South by Southwest, which is a really big tech, tech conference. And, uh, and th that failed, 
but in the process, a couple publishers saw it and reached out to me and said, hey, this looks like a good book idea. So I ended up working with, with Wiley on that. And it was a pretty quick process. So, so quick that I ended up talking to some agents along the way. And um, so agents help you interface with a publisher because publishing, there's, not, there's only so many publishers really. And these agents kind of already have relationships with the editors at these publishing houses who sort of choose these books uh, and, and make the deals and stuff. And supposedly an agent will negotiate a better deal for you, advocate for you, kind of know what sort of tricks maybe to look out for in, um, in the contracts and stuff that might not be so much in your favor. And then in the process, you know, you'll supposedly make more money and then they'll take a, a cut of that. So I did talk to some agents uh, in the process there. And I remember talking to actually uh, Tim Ferriss's agent. Um, he was nice enough to speak to me on the phone and he was like, wow, this is happening so fast. He was asking me about the process. I'm just like, wow, okay, this is, this is happening very fast. So it was a very, uh, I think it was an unusual sort of uh, process and I made an outline and um, my acquisitions editor who had reached out to me uh, pitched it internally. And I think uh, I didn't have to do, I didn't have to make an incredible proposal to really win them over. It was sort of already a foregone conclusion. And so I did that and uh, got an advance through that and had this series of deadlines and an editor, which was really more of a, prod, uh, a project manager of, you know, hit, these, you have to have 25% done by this date, 50% done by that date, and we'll pay you this much on these dates, et cetera. And in the contract, it says, well, if you miss any of these dates, we can just say, hey, this is done. Uh, give us all the money back, et cetera. So lots of pressure. It was a six-month um, writing timeline. And that I negotiated up from a four-and-a-half-month writing timeline that they had originally proposed, which would have been a nightmare. I mean, because six months was, was a nightmare. I, I, I sort of just was at this point in my life where I, I had set up things for something like this to happen and kind of had the space clear and, you know, was, was desperate and hungry enough for success that I was willing to just lock out, lock myself in my apartment and lock myself out of uh, every other aspect of my life, pretty much social life, dating, etc., and just bear down for six months and suffer my way through uh, writing that first book. Now, when I finally <laughs> survived that process and then was ready to write a book again, I decided, well, I wanted I want to do the traditional publishing thing again, and. Uh, that's where I started to, to do it sort of the way you're supposed to do it. And I didn't go to Wiley with my book idea, which was not even, it's not even a book that necessarily exists right now. And because it wasn't really the right fit for them, I don't think. And uh, so I sort of went about it the way you're sort of supposed to go about traditional publishing, which is you sign up for a thing called Publishers Marketplace. And you start to look at books in your genre that are similar. And you try to figure out who's the agent for this book. And then you can look on Publishers Marketplace and see all the deals coming in um, 
and see who was the agent on this, who was the editor, who was the publishing house, et cetera, and start to get a feel for like who are the the agents really is what you're looking for in that case. You're looking, who are the agents who would be interested in this book idea, uh, who would have the relationships and who have successfully gotten books like this published before uh, that you would want to get in contact with. And then it's a matter of you create a book proposal where uh, you're sort of outlining the whole book and you kind of have to already know everything that's in the whole book. So in a way you kind of have to write the whole book already because you have to know like, okay, in this chapter, I'm going to talk about this using this example and that example, etc. And so I suffered my way through this process and wrote, I think, two different like 60 page proposals for books with marketing plans, etc. And queried agents, um, which is just you write a short letter. And uh, I got responses from them which i think was helped along by the fact that i had already written a book that had sold pretty well and uh but there was, it was lukewarm i didn't get sort of what i had heard from some friends of mine who maybe have larger platforms who were like oh yeah such and such agent uh you know help me out with this uh proposal we sort of worked together on it and that's how we pitched it and so i wasn't getting that kind of reaction and the more that i did it the more it felt uncomfortable for me the more that i felt like i had to kind of pretend to be somebody that i wasn't uh to tell them what they wanted to hear you know as i looked at more and more proposals and i looked at more and more of the books that are published by traditional publishers the more i realized that there were sort of these traditional authority triggers that they were looking out for you know like they want to see all europe professor at an Ivy League university or you're a CEO at a Fortune 500 company or you have this consultancy that consults with Fortune 500 companies or something and that wasn't those weren't things that I wanted I didn't want I wasn't that and I and I didn't want to be that and so the more that I thought about it, the more I, I realized that the proposal writing process was not aligned with how I like to write I like to write to discover sort of it's a the proposal writing process is sort of a top down. I already know this stuff and I'm going to tell you about it. Whereas I like to write more of a bottom up approach of, of I've got some questions in my mind and I'm going to try to answer them and I'm going to work on this and, and, and write and uh, the book will emerge from that process. And so, so I remember on episode 77 of my podcast, speaking with Seth Godin, and I was really milling about, as he would say, uh, you, you know, about oh, how I'm just not getting this traditional publishing deal that uh, I was trying to get. And he sort of snapped me into shape, said, hey, you know, you're always going to be the head of marketing for your book. So how do you learn that? You learn that by just publishing a book a week and learning how to get people to sign up for a website. and." learning how to put the right keywords on your Kindle book or whatever. And so you, you learn by doing. And really, no traditional publisher is going to want you uh, or not, not going to give you a good deal unless they know you're going to sell books. And if they know you're going to sell books, you don't actually need them in the first place. But, you know, if you can, take a, if you can get a six-figure book deal, go ahead and take it. 
Um, but otherwise, just go and do it. And so that was, I think, the moment that I really realized that uh, that I was going to self-publish. And so I, I published The Heart to Start very quickly and, and naturally was able to write that book and got that out in 2017. And uh, since then, I've also taken some of Seth's advice and written a lot of short reads. So how to write a book. There's various other ones like one on uh, cryptocurrency called Steam It, one on uh, a font, the papyrus font. We've got one on the digital Zettelkasten. That's a, a system that I use for keeping notes and stuff that's doing very, very well. Um, and, then I, and then on top of it, I've also written a, a, another book, My Management, Not Time Management. So I've got like three full length books, a whole series of short reads, and I'm quite fiercely and happily uh, independent and, and self-published now. I love um, being able to see the data uh, when I do some marketing and I can see the book's sales that day rather than say like the most successful uh, marketing campaign that I had for Design for Hackers. I didn't see a paycheck for it until nine, nine months later. And that was pretty much like when I realized that it was successful in selling books. I can run my own ads. Uh, I get 70% of the sales. Um, and I'm also somebody who publishes outside of Amazon, AKA being wide. Um, even though a lot of my most, maybe 90% of my sales come from Amazon, it doesn't make a lot of economic sense for me to publish in other places, but I sort of do it to stay diversified and keep fight the good fight, I guess, give people some other choices. Um, so I really enjoy being uh, self-published. And I think anybody who's waiting for permission, asking for permission to do this thing that they don't need permission to do, I would really recommend that they give themselves that permission. So it's a lot of information right there about the difference between traditional versus self-publishing. Thank you for being so elaborate about it and <laughs> giving plenty of details to make a whole C. Yeah. I, I think it helps people to make a better decision about uh, whether they want self publish or find a publisher. You've given a lot of information that I, that was very new to me about how to find a publisher. So that, that was very a interesting. Of, a lot of it's an ego thing. We want the approval. We want, I guess, so much of Seth Godin's advice from episode 77 resonates with me. Is this idea of, like, we want reassurance. Like, we want somebody to tell us it's going to be fine. Yeah. But, uh, and, and we want that validation. And, and I, there's certainly, like, a palpable difference sometimes when people find out that you have something traditionally published versus self-published. There's a little more respect from some people or some certain outlets but um i'm okay with that yeah i read in in one of your books i guess that design for hackers even managed to outsell for example tim ferris's four-hour work week is that correct yeah for the first day it was uh number 18 on all of amazon which is Nuts. I, I don't know. I, I can't, I can't seem to do that today. Even when I, you know, put a book on sale for a dollar 99 or something. Yeah. So top 20 on all of his Amazon, uh, it sold a lot of books That's uh, the, first, the first day or a few days, for, especially. So, and yeah, it was above, there was, you know, I was above Tim Ferriss and former vice president Dick Cheney and, you know, many, many, many authors that you would never dream to outsell. 
Uh-huh. That's that's amazing. That's very impressive. Since you started then self-publishing, that's not something that you've managed to achieve again. No, and I think part of the reason is that when I did that in 2011, I think Amazon's algorithms were a little bit more, um, they were a little less sophisticated. I think they were sort of just updating every hour based upon the sales velocity. And now they're a little bit more smoothed out so that it's like the sales velocity for that hour, but as sort of mixed in with how well has this been Bookman selling over, I don't know exactly, but I, I would guess like the previous several hours, the previous few days. And then I think there's also algorithmic cliffs at like 30 days and 90 days, et cetera. So I think their algorithms got uh, yeah, gotten more sophisticated. Um, and also there were, it, it, it really was sort of a positive black swan as Taleb would say, where, you know, there was just the hacker news community, which is a really rabid community of uh, developers and entrepreneurs, um, which has changed a lot since then. Uh, they were just all about that book. I was just really riding this wave where they were hungry to learn about design. And uh, not only my blog post that was introducing the book, but also the Amazon link were on the front page of Hacker News all day, which is like one of the most trafficked uh, sort of websites or news aggregators out there. And I don't, I don't even think you would see an Amazon link on the front page of there. I recently, uh, when my management, not time management came out, uh, the Amazon link for it was on the front page for about three seconds. And then the editors took it down. They're like, oh no, this isn't, this isn't how it's not relevant to the community or something like that. You know, like you have commercial pages, which is kind of weird because people share their startups and stuff. But when you, you know, put 10 years into writing a book, they have a different feeling about it. I don't know. I, I think it's actually kind of, hypocritical but uh but there was a sort of perfect storm worked out to make it really go up and that's kind of what we're doing um when we're leveraging media when we're writing books when we're doing creative work is that we can have certain things that we're shooting for um we can have certain plans about how things are going to work out but then something spontaneous happens and um and sometimes those things line up so that something you couldn't possibly have planned for happens yeah, that's the beauty of it. I've been going a little bit towards the, the not so beautiful side of writing, uh, but this last question, number the next one as well. So you mentioned the time pressure and when you were trying to propose for a new book with a publisher that you didn't, your style didn't really align with what they were looking for. Do you think those were the biggest obstacles or were there other bigger, big obstacles um, while writing your first book or for your first two books? The first two books are so different from one another. I'll start with the book writing process because when I wrote that um, first book, Design for Hackers, I wasn't a writer. You know, I had written some blog posts and I sort of had this idea of how writing got done. It was that, oh, you, you, if you need to write 50,000 words over the course of six months, it's like 250 or 300 words a day, put that in the calendar, crank out that many words. Well, it doesn't really work that way. What I found was that uh, I would spend 12 hours a day banging my head against the wall and just being in actual physical ang- agony, trying to just write anything. But then every once in a while, I would get this sort of 
I would hit this nerve or this vein or something that would just start gushing and I would hit flow and in 15 minutes I would write like an entire chapter worth of writing. So that's actually one of the main things that I that that uh, inspired me to write uh, mind management not time management was this discovery that well it, it's not so much necessarily about having the time to create things to to write what, what's much harder is actually putting yourself in the right state of mind to do that and that's taken a, a lot of practice to where now I've pretty much got it down you know I've got systems in place where I've got a podcast every two an essay every two weeks on my podcast I've got a uh, a short essay in my Love Mondays email uh, every week, and I sort of have a process set down where I can sit down and write a crappy draft for like two minutes, and then revisit it a week later, and suddenly it's more it's more clear in my mind, and I can spend another two minutes on it, and it's like that much better, and I'm able to do something with just a few minutes. Um, spread out across over time something that would have taken me hours of agony to get right if if it were possible at all um if i were just approaching it with a sort of traditional productivity mindset uh-huh. so that has really worked for you um splitting it up in into the different set, um, parts of creativity as you mentioned in your books now how would you turn this personal approach to writing into three actionable tips for someone who's listening if they wanted to write better one i would say lower your standards give yourself permission to suck um like hemingway said the first draft of anything is shit and like really embrace how bad you can make that first i mean we could talk, we're talking like misspellings, changing the subject in the middle of the sentence. Maybe you don't have sentences. Maybe it's sentence fragments. Maybe it's bullet points. And then all of a sudden, one of the bullet points turns into a run-on sentence or paragraph. You're putting things in brackets because where you're saying like, oh, here's where I would need a really cool example that illustrates this. Like real shit. I mean, just terrible, awful. And don't spend too much time on that. Spend a few minutes on that. And then I would say, embrace uh the power of incubation uh, your your mind has this passive genius in it that is incredibly powerful that you just you can't even avoid it it's something i've noticed living in colombia and learning spanish uh i've got a um a ritual with my with my partner where her and i read uh she and i read one page from a book in our respective languages out loud and we read it like every day, one page, but then we read that one page like a few different times until it's like we've got it down. And it's really incredible how like the first time you read it out loud, you're, you just, you're stumbling over the words, you can't get it right. And then by the third time, you're just fluidly reading this, the, these words that you could not say, and you've only spent like a few minutes on it. Like your, 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 your mind is incredible. It, it, it starts to, you, if you put effort towards any sort of problem, then in, in the off time, your mind figures it out, especially if you get good sleep and stuff. So take advantage of that because I, one of the hardest things about writing is <laughs> getting yourself to do the writing 
And if it's going to be painful, then you'll be even less likely to do it. So when you give yourself permission to suck and then you let incubation take over, you take a lot of that pain away from the process. Things get easier. Things don't take as much time. Um, and then I guess the third thing, if I were to say a third thing, is that there's, I think there's three C's to um, being a great writer. And um, one is consistency. Consistency, like, can you write on a uh, regular basis? Like, regardless of whether it's good or not, can you get yourself so that you are, are writing on a, uh, a, a regular schedule? And the second one, I'm trying to actually think of what even the second one is. So, the, so you want to be consistent with it. And then you want to, so the third one's craft, definitely. Like that's the last thing that you need to be worrying about is like, am I getting the right words? Okay, the second one's courage, right? Okay. So consistency, courage, craft. So consistency, can you write consistently? Courage, can you have the courage to actually put your writing out there? Like that's a whole other thing in itself that needs to be overcome. And then finally, you're thinking about craft. Like, am I choosing the right words here? Um, how can I better word this so that it's going to have the effect that I want and work on one of those things at a time. Uh, sort of like how Benjamin Franklin has 13 virtues. He only like worked on thrift, you know, for a week. And then the next week he worked on, you know, generosity or whatever. And you can only focus on one thing at a time. So uh, I would say one of the biggest barriers that people have to writing is they're trying to do all three of those C's at once. They're trying to build a writing habit and they're trying to like post things on their blog. And then they're also trying to like make it good. <laughs> Perfect. So summed up um, your three tips are first, don't be afraid to write sh shit. Hemingway's words. So secondly, um, leave to suck. All right. Um, and so leave um, time for incubation afterwards. So enough time to let your writing sit, as Stephen King would say, put it in a drawer and um, then come back. I'd say to like employ your passive genius is how I would really sum it up. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, perfect. And then the third one is just don't um, want it all at the same time. Work on consistency, courage and craft at different times one by one. Right. Then from your book, The Heart to Start, I, um, there are two things that I've taken away. So I only finished reading a couple of days ago, but there are two things that I'm trying to implement in my life. One is uh, motivational judo, which you already talked about a little bit when we were talking yeah. uh, about the alpha smart. And the other one, I can't remember what you named it again, but just the, the idea that every s single moment you can make a little bit of progress. So I used to procrastinate quite a bit or just find myself uh, scrolling Twitter in those like five minutes between leaving my work and, and leaving the house. So for example, after dinner, like we need to go in 10 minutes, not enough time to get started on work. Well, it's, that's, that's wrong. You can start in 10 minutes and you can make a little bit of progress. Uh, so those that, have been that, my biggest lessons. That last one I, I call inflating the investment, which is just that we think that it's going to, we only have like a couple minutes while we're waiting for in the dentist uh, waiting room or something. And all of a sudden, it's not enough time to do anything of, uh, of substance, so we'll just open up social media. Well, I mean, you can sort of like, I've heard Walter Isaacson say this. You know, he's written all these amazing biographies of like Benjamin Franklin and Steve Jobs and Leonardo da Vinci that he'll, like if he's sitting in an airport, he'll open up his phone and, you know, start, start writing. 
Um, and, and that's one of these things where sort of lowering your bar for quality uh, can help uh, overcome that tendency to procrastinate is that like, if you just open up a little document and you write some like crappy bullet points, that's progress. It, that can be useful. You can actually do something with that. And it's also one of the things that makes the Zettelkasten really useful, um, which is just a series of having a bunch of different notes of things that you've read because you can quickly open it up and it's almost like using Twitter, but it's all the most interesting, useful things that you've collected that you're reviewing. And um, it's another great way to make use of those little pockets of time. How do you actively use your Zettelkasten? I mean, it's probably in your book. I have a huge collection of notes, highlights, yeah. um, quotes, and I find it so hard to just say, okay, I'm going to open it up right now and read a couple of them. Well, I mean, one thing that I like to do, like if I'm waiting for some friends to show up to a restaurant or something, I'll often have uh, just markdown um, highlights from a book exported, and I'll just sort of review those, and I'm like highlighting the highlights. Tiago Forte calls it progressive summarization. I'm like highlighting the highlights um, to sort of like identify what are the most interesting parts of this. And that's one of those things you can just sit there and do fidgeting around. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's sort of like the important thing I think is finding the low effort, low commitment activities that you can do that only take a second to get into. And that if you get interrupted, um, you can quickly just make a little quick placeholder there and, and pick up with it later. It can be overwhelming to pick up, to open up your entire Zettelkast and um, just on your phone while you're waiting somewhere. Thank you. And let's finish with my, my final, my favorite question. What's your secret? <laughs> What's my secret? I don't know. Secret to what? <laughs> um, to writing. Um, I think my secret is, my secret to writing is that I, never thought of myself as a writer okay perfect <laughs> yeah i guess that helps with imposter syndrome yeah it's just sort of accidentally happened and i think a lot of people put a lot of pressure on themselves they feel like they have to go go to an mfa program or something to get the permission to put their words out there but everybody writes some of us write better than others only way you can get good at it is by doing it Wow. Thanks for listening until the end. It means a lot to me. Now, if you could just do me one more small favor, please hit the follow button or the subscribe button wherever you're listening so that you get an update of the next episode of the Coffee and Pen podcast. Thanks for listening again. See you next time.